שם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים, שבוע טוב, שבוע מבורך. We're uh, starting another week with uh, our uh, series of uh, Jewish Hashkafa, the Jewish ideology. Tonight's uh, shiur was uh, sponsored by and uh, also for the uh, refu- miraculous refuah shlema of Tinok ben Rivka, also for refuah shlema for Rivka bat Sara, for Shira Dvora bat Dikla, also for refuah shlema for Chanoch ben Sara, Rabbanit Levana bat Sara, Rav Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara bat Anat, אורית בת אילנה, טליה בת שרה, יתרו בן אברהם, דוד בן עשריה, דוריס בת ג'ורה, ג'ושוע בן נוח, אלכס בן נוח, ואולסו פור הצלחה רבה, פור מרשה בת ג'ולי, איילה בת מרשה, סמיול בן מרשה, ספס בן מרשה, אלכזנדר בן מרשה, לואיס בן מרשה, שאול בן פרזנה, ראובן חיים בן פלה פארל, נתנאל יוסף בן אברהם, יתרו בן אברהם, דוד בן עשריה, אושרי בן דוריס, גבי בן דוריס, אלעד בן דוריס, and all of Am Yisrael and all of the righteous Noahites that continue to support all the things that we're doing, ברוך השם, to help the world, to help כלל ישראל, ברוך השם, get closer and closer to הקדוש ברוך הוא through thick and thin. So, Bezat Hashem, in the next uh, day or two, uh, we're going to publicize a, uh, another uh, heartbreaking video uh, of uh, someone that uh, we know and uh, uh, really a very precious human being, a uh, very precious Jew in Eretz Yisrael, Arav Sharf, Mordechai Sharf, and uh, he is uh, one of these people that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given him a lot of uh, major tests, a lot of very big difficulties, and uh, he's asking for our uh, help uh, to uh, wed his daughter. We, uh, our organization already helps him uh, uh, with uh, financially to, uh, to, to eat. Uh, he has a, a family of 19 between him, his kids, his grandkids, and so on, and pretty much it seems like everything is on his head. Uh, so already it's uh, very difficult to say the least, but uh, recently he had a uh, major work accident where he lost a couple of fingers and uh, he lost his job and now uh, the uh, ability to wed his daughter uh, is up in the air uh, and his daughter is a really a balat chesed, a fantastic human being that takes care of two uh, young uh, people that are uh, of special needs. And uh, this is one of the many projects that uh, our organization takes on behind the scenes of just doing chesed to try to help as many people as possible. So this, everything I just said is going to be in a video, but uh, in addition, you'll see him, uh, you'll see his, you'll hear his voice and uh, you'll hear him. Uh, he wants us to share this. Uh, he's, it's, it's a heartbreaking video because you're, you're hearing a uh, grown man cry. Um, you know, pleading for help from uh, from people, and it's uh, it's one of those things where, on one end, you're thinking, you know, to uh, to share it, so perhaps uh, some people open up their hearts and uh, and their wallets. But on another end, it's uh, never a wonderful thing to uh, to, to to hear, uh, you know, just because you don't like to see uh, you know Jews uh, in in bad shape. But of course, this is necessary. Uh, the point is, the video is not just to also help him, but also to help others. There are many cases like this that we try to uh, to help people uh, when we can. 
whether it's uh, food for Shabbat or for the holidays uh, or, uh, you know, surgeries, uh, different types of things that we try to help. Uh, and uh, we also try to help uh, uh, people that we know are doing good for the world, even sometimes if they're not Jewish. Just last week, we, uh, we helped a, uh, uh, a Noahide organization uh, to, uh, in Africa that uh, needs to get some material for the students. Uh, and you're talking about, you know, uh, people that are studying outside with uh, their, their most prized possession was a chalkboard that uh, in America at best maybe is worth $20. Uh, so, I mean, these uh, young kids, you see them learning and everything, it's, uh, you want to help. And of course, some of these things are $100, $200, and some of them are, you know, thousands of dollars. But the key is, if a Kadosh Baruch Hu sends you somebody, uh, that uh, there's a reason for it. Uh, there's a reason for it. Uh, especially if the people are people that uh, fear Hashem and learn Torah and do mitzvot. And uh, if you have the ability to help, you help. Sometimes uh, we do personally, sometimes the organization, sometimes both. The key is to try to make ourselves the, the vessel that Hashem continues to use uh, to, to spread the, uh, the goodness of the Torah. Uh, and of course, this is one of the things that helps uh, you know, uh, Hashem have a reason uh, to give us more parnasah, to give the people that donate more parnasah, to uh, to uh, help us continue growing and doing all the things that he wants us to do, but at the same token, do it even on a larger scale. So uh, this is one of the things you'll see in a couple of days. The reason why it's taking a little time is just simply we want to put the subtitles uh, for uh, the words that he said. Um, with that being said, we're going to go straight into this shoe because there's a lot of material. Uh, and uh, we see that the Chazonish... Uh, over the last uh, few shurim, uh, the last few sections of this uh, sefer called Emunah uh obviously go into uh, the depth of, uh, of, of the ideology of a Jew, which is not just to have Emunah and Bitachon theoretically, but actually the uh, understanding what is Emunah and Bitachon and what is really a Jew, what is a, the, the ideology of a Jew. And uh, for the last several shurim, he's explained to us that the uh, most critical part is the understanding of where the priorities lie. Where, where is the most important part? Where is the uh, alacha stand? Where is Musar stand? Where is Amuna? Where is everything has to, has to have a certain priority list uh, that uh, a person needs to know because many times you'll see, you know, people mean to do good, uh, but unfortunately end up doing evil and uh, and it's not always on purpose you know you have a uh, a person wants to uh, go and uh, feed the poor but uh, he's gonna end up driving on Shabbat to do it obviously this is not allowed because you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat uh, but uh, the key is to know how to utilize the halacha how to use the law itself the Torah itself in a uh, in a way where you can do good but good that is favorable in the eye of Hashem there was actually a uh, person that uh, at the time Rav Ovadia, Lava Shalom, was in Egypt as the uh, rabbi over there. Uh, and uh, this person, you know, got a, a bunch of uh, uh, write-ups by different rabbanim, and he wanted to do kiruv. He wanted to do kiruv, he wanted to help people uh, learn more Torah, so he got some uh, write-ups from different rabbis, uh, from different countries, from different books, and he made a very, very nice newsletter. And uh, he wanted to give it out to the people. So what did he do? He decided that he's going to give it out to them on Shabbat. Now, of course, what else do you want? You want people to learn Torah. 
And what better day is there to learn Torah on Shabbat, where Chachamim say that the if the uh, a person understood the magnitude of how much reward they're going to get for learning Torah, they simply could multiply that by a thousand, and some say much more than a thousand if they learned that Torah on Shabbat. Uh, this is the reason why Rav Ovadia himself used to learn Torah on Shabbat without sleeping. Uh, and many other Chachamim would learn Torah, you know, extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary amounts of Torah on Shabbat. And this person wanted people in Egypt to learn Torah. He wanted the Jewish people of Egypt, at the time there were many Jews over there, he wanted them to learn Torah, and what's a better way? By giving them already prepared material in his extraordinary newsletter. What's the problem with this? What could be the problem? The problem is that at that time, there was no iluv. There was no iluv in, uh, in Egypt, which uh, means that you were not allowed to carry. You know, if you have a, uh, if you're in a uh, community and there is no iluv, uh, then you're not allowed to carry anything on Shabbat. You're not allowed to carry even your own baby. You're not allowed to walk around with a uh, baby carriage. And surely you're not allowed to carry your talit or, or a newsletter or a sidul. Not allowed to carry and uh, at a place where there is a, uh, a certain uh, distance or there's a certain amount of people, 600,000 people, uh, the Chachamim consider it even a biblical violation. So here this person is trying to, do, uh, to, to give people Torah to learn, and he figures that, listen, since it's Torah, even though there's no Yeruv, he knew what an Yeruv is, but even though there's no Yeruv, at least it's Torah, at least they're going to learn Torah, and you know if they're going to carry, let them at least carry Torah logically this makes all the sense in the world logically it's 100 percent forbidden so Ravavadya rebuked this person for doing such a thing he says yes you're uh, want to help them do a mitzvah but in a way of sin and uh, we have a rule in the torah and mitzvah ba'avira. we're not allowed to do mitzvot in a way of making sin you know you can't uh, say listen i'm gonna go and uh, do a mitzvah but in the process i'm gonna sin there's no such thing uh that's permitted according to the torah now, of course, you're going to say, but yeah, but what about if, let's say, somebody is a, uh, you know, is uh, sick or there's a, a medical emergency, and, uh, you know, what do you do? Do you take him to the hospital on Shabbat and drive or not? Yes, you take him to the hospital on Shabbat, and that's actually the mitzvah. Why? Because pikuach nefesh dochet the Torah. Pikuach nefesh, when there's a life risk, that's what pikuach nefesh is, the Torah is put on hold. Torah is put on hold, and to uh, to uh, uh, so it's not that you are a uh, allowed to violate Shabbat. It's that Shabbat is put on hold until there's no longer a life risk. So once you take the person in a car uh, or a plane or whatever way, you have to get him to uh, to get uh, treated. You take him to uh, to get the attention that he needs to get and to uh, uh, remove the life risk. Automatically, as soon as that life risk is uh, ends the uh, Shabbat is turned back on automatically. And for a person that's a non-professional, a person that's, let's say, just a friend or family or a per- person in the community that drove that person to the, uh, uh, to the uh, hospital, they're not allowed to drive back uh, because Shabbat is already back on. So they can't drive back on. And as obviously Chachamim uh, that say that the doctors that uh, have to work on Shabbat uh, when there are situations of life risk, they're allowed to come back because if we would tell them that every time uh, they would have to uh, uh, put their Shabbat on hold, they would never be able to come back, they would, you know, it would disincentivize uh, uh, dis- incent- uh, intense- uh, uh, dis- them to, uh, to actually do this uh, to help people and, and save lives and it cost the uh, lives of people. 
so doctors that are professionals are allowed to come back but everybody else has to stay at the hospital until the end of shabbat so here we see just a small tiny example uh you know of uh, how Allah actually works and here the chazonish is uh trying to explain to us that a person can be the nicest person in the world but if they are violating the halacha they're not going to be viewed favorably in the uh, in the torah they're not going to be viewed favorably in the eyes of akadosh Belchu. and this is also the reason why in last week's parasha akadosh Belchu, uh through the mouth of moshe rabenu tells us exactly what he expects every single one of us and uh, this actually was a uh, one of the sections in the uh, parasha is one of the uh, parshiot that we say every single day uh, in Shema Yisrael. It's one of the parshiot that you have in the Tefillin, where it says, mm-hmm. So it says in the uh, chapter 11, uh, verse number 13, uh, it says it starts a whole paragraph, and it will be that if you hearken to my commandments that I command you today, to love Hashem your God, and to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then I shall provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and the later rains, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your, and your oil. I shall provide, and it continues, uh, verse 15, I shall provide grass in your field and your cattle, and it goes into all the different blessings that a person would get for following the Torah, for following the Allah. But on the other hand, this very same paragraph that we read every single day in Shema Yisrael uh, also continues in verse number 17, says, if you restrain the heaven, um, I'm sorry, it, it continues, uh, beware for yourselves in verse 16, beware for yourselves, lest your heart be seduced and you turn, away, uh, turn astray and serve gods of others and prostrate yourselves to them. And of course, we already learned that idolatry is not just a statue or yoshke idolatry could sometimes be money idolatry can sometimes be sports idolatry can be a, a person idolatry could even be a rabbi if you're idolizing your rabbi in a uh, in a forbidden way so uh if, uh if we turn into idolatry then the wrath of hashem will blaze against you he will restrain the heaven so there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its produce and you will be swiftly banished from the goodly land that hashem gives you you shall place these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul you shall bind them for a sign upon your arm and let them be an ornament between your eyes this is also the mitzvah of tefillin for men that uh, men have to put on tefillin and this uh, tefillin is uh, in essence the uh recognition of our acceptance of this specific mitzvah not only to follow the halacha but also to be uh, uh acknowledge the warning that if we don't un- unfortunately there is a uh a, a judgment for that both in this world and the next so that's why it's always baffling when you hear sometimes people that claim to be knowledgeable of torah whether rabbis or not say that uh, there's no punishment in this world and uh, hashem doesn't punish he loves everybody when clearly we read it every single day in shema yisrael clearly it's in your tefillin clearly it's in it's in the arm it's in the head it's it's supposed to be in your neshama too and in essence when a person says there's no punishment in this world there's no punishment in the next world it's obviously shows that these people either are completely clueless or they're they're biased uh in in such a fashion 
that they have forgotten what the Torah actually says, or they're ignoring it altogether. Either way, the uh, the key is to know that to follow this this uh, uh, commandment of loving Hashem to uh, and serving Him with all of our hearts, with all of our resources, and so on, obviously requires instructions. It requires instructions because how are we going to know? First and foremost, how do we put this on our arm and our leg? There's no place in the entire Torah that's going to tell you the details of how a tefillin is supposed to look. So if you say, put it on the arm, put it on the leg, maybe I should tattoo it. Maybe I should uh, put it in a little tube and uh, put it on, a, uh, on my finger. So of course, the oral Torah comes in and tells us exactly all of the alachot, which is there's over a thousand alachot, a thousand laws pertaining to the making of tefillin. To the making of tefillin. That's why I always tell people, don't buy tefillin from just anybody. You have to buy it from someone that you know who the scribe is. And the scribe is someone that has yirat shamayim, has fear of the Almighty, is, is an expert in the halacha, and is not someone that's just sending, selling it to you for, for a discount. Uh, you know, uh, uh, rule of thumb is, don't buy it from anybody you don't know, or at least does not have somebody else that's reliable that uh that knows that person which ie means buying it on ebay buying it on amazon buying it uh from uh, some uh, store that uh claims that they're good just because their price is very high is never a good idea you always want to make sure that you buy to fill in from a good place where the sofer is someone that is reliable and is an expert on halacha and also is someone that makes good quality tefillin and good quality tefillin uh, in the eyes of some people, may seem expensive. You know, if you're going to buy good quality tefillin, you're talking about $1,000 and higher. You're not going to buy good quality tefillin for $200, $300. That most likely is not even kosher. Uh, you know, we've seen a few things where you see people say, yeah, I bought this tefillin for uh, $300. You open up the tefillin, you see a newspaper inside. And uh, in some cases, you see a cross. So, of course, you have to understand that if you buy a tefillin from a non-kosher source, and you put on the tefillin every single day for 10 years, and then one day you discover those tefillin are not kosher, that means that for 10 years, you were sinning every single day, you were not making a mitzvah. Even though you didn't know they were not kosher, it's still not considered a mitzvah. Why? The onus is on you to verify that what you're doing is 100% correct, hence the reason why you're commanded to love Hashem. Love Hashem meaning love is mitzvot. Don't just uh, look for a discount when it comes to his mitzvot, but when it comes to getting a new house or a new car or a new anything else, you're uh, willing to splurge. This is uh, really, really important when it comes to doing mitzvot to make sure that we realize that the reason why Kadosh Baruch Hu gives us money is so we buy an, a, a good things with it. Good things doesn't just mean good things like cars and houses, but good things also means the mitzvot. Get yourself a good quality tefillin, good quality talit, good quality mezuzot. It baffles me sometimes when people tell me, listen, I, uh, you know, I need a mezuzah, but uh, I have something in my house. Uh, okay, where did you get it from? Oh, I don't really remember. I think the rabbi, uh, you know, uh, had something in the, uh, some giveaway box. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, he said, anyone that wants to take it, I could take it. And I took one. I said, okay, but did you ever get him checked? No, getting it checks is $20. I don't feel like checking 20 mezuzot. Wait, so you have 20 rooms in your house, but you don't want to spend a few hundred dollars to make sure that they're, you know, actually kosher mezuzot? Or the best yet is when people say, listen, we already checked one mezuzah and we verified that it's not kosher. Should we continue checking or maybe we could just leave it and it's going to be okay? 
people take such risks and then they're surprised the tragedy happens or all types of problems happen there's a very famous story that uh Rav Gross, Rav Gross uh, writes in his uh in his book uh called the living legend highly recommended and uh he uh himself extraordinary Talmud Chacham comes from a uh, an empire of Talmidei Chachamim his father was one of the Gdolei Ador and uh Rabbi Yitzchak Gross he says that uh one time he had a uh his daughter this uh, got an infection on her eye she got an infection on her eye and uh, no matter what they would do what kind of uh medicine they would use nothing worked and this infection got worse and worse by the day to the point of literally practically deforming her face and this was a real tragedy she's obviously embarrassed she's in pain agony nightmare now he's going to all types of doctors and no one can do anything now uh one time he uh decided that uh he's going to uh go to a uh, doctor in america because he was going to a trip to raise some money for his uh extraordinary organization in Eretz Israel and he's gonna uh, go to a uh, well-known uh, doctor in America and he goes to the doctor and he brings with him he brings with him a uh, huge file he brings with him a huge file the entire medical file to bring to uh, to the doctor now the uh the uh, the doctor says I need to see your daughter I need to see your daughter I can't just look at this I have to see also the daughter so urgent immediately they fly in the daughter they fly in the daughter she's there and of course this was such a uh, painful trip for her uh to go on a plane when you have such agony infection and so on is never a fun thing I know from experience don't try this at home if you don't have to uh and uh the daughter comes the doctor sees that the file is an understatement for 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 the condition and he says to Rav Gross I need three days and then I'll give you an answer and this is a world-renowned doctor uh what kind of procedure we can do what we can do how we can do it uh it's not going to be an easy thing but I need to think about it and review it with some of my peers over the next three days so Rav Gross uh who uh his wife is a uh, Hasida of Chabad uh, decides to go and visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe the uh the Lubavitcher Rebbe the most uh, recent one and he knew that the Lubavitcher Rebbe every single day would arrive to uh to uh 770 to uh and to pray and at the spa- same exact time and everybody would uh make like a uh people would want to see him when he's coming in and the uh the men would be on one side the women would be on the other side and he would simply cross with a few of his people in the middle now and everyone obviously wants that appreciates tzaddikim wanted to see the tzaddik first thing in the morning was nothing better than that and uh he said i'm gonna go talk to the lubavitcher rebbe so they went they knew exactly what time it was waiting the lubavitcher rebbe arrives and as he gets out of the car and he starts walking towards the door Rav Gross does something only a father would do only a father would do what does he do he gets out of the line and goes in the middle and blocks the way of the Lubavitcher Rebbe goes like this and obviously the Lubavitcher Rebbe sees him 
And he knows, obviously, this is a this is an emergency. This is not, uh, listen, uh, I want a blessing, maybe I can make some more money, or uh, I have a question about Allah. This is an emergency. This is not a, something that you do. And the Babi Trebi looks at him, he says, No. And the uh, Rav Gross points to his daughter, who's standing there in, uh, on the side with the rest of the women, and he points to his daughter. He says, Her. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe doesn't, uh, is not a person that uh, is uh, typically looking at uh, women or anything. His eyes were holy, obviously. But nonetheless, he sees something there and he looks at his daughter and he sees his daughter's deformed face. A much deformed face. Infection all over the side. Something that the, the, the Rav Goh says, you, you can't even describe it in words. And literally within a second, Mamash Ruach HaKodesh, Lubavitcher Rebbe says to Rav Gos, check your mezuzah. That's it. That's all he said. He didn't say, listen, let me think. Amash, Ruach HaKodesh. Says to Rav Gos, check your mezuzah. Rav Gos understood. Chacham says something we do. That's what a person has, Emunat Chachamim does. We don't ask 50 questions. Why did you say this? Maybe it's this. I don't agree. Somebody else. Something. The Chacham said, that's all I do. Gets out of the line, calls his wife in Eretz Yisrael immediately says, get someone to check the mezuzot right away, immediately. Immediately they go, they check, and ishtabach shimol the bedroom where his daughter, the bedroom where his daughter is sleeping, they check the mezuzah, and they see that the word I, the word I in there, has a missing letter, has a missing letter. In the mezuzah, got uh, wiped out or with temperature, whatever it is. Sometimes that happens over time. Got wiped out. Immediately, they changed the mezuzah. And Rav Ghost writes in his book, the effect was so miraculous, literally within 24 hours, something that they've been suffering, the girl's been suffering, the whole family's suffering through for, I think, something close to a year. In 24 hours, it healed. 24 hours later, she wakes up in the morning, the whole thing is gone. The whole thing is gone. And he says, we still have an appointment with the doctor. I want to take you to the doctor. He takes his daughter to the doctor. The doctor is looking at him. He looks at the file. He looks at the daughter. He looks at the file. He looks at him. He looks at the daughter. He looks at the file. No. He says... Emunat Chachamim. Emunat Chachamim. That event gave the doctor such chizuk, he did complete tshuva. The doctor did complete tshuva. He says, this is 100% a miracle. I was going to tell you, there's almost nothing to be done. We don't know. We could try some procedures, which will probably be torture for your daughter. But nonetheless, this though, in 24 hours, not possible. According to medicine, it's not possible. According to medicine, it's not possible. Why? Kosher mezuzah. Kosher mezuzah, Rabotai Karim, doesn't only work if you are sleeping in the same room. To have a kosher mezuzah as onkelos, in the Gemara in Masechet uh, Avodah Zarah, says to the Romaim that came over there, says to the Romans that came to uh, arrest him, he says to him, my kosher mezuzah, my mezuzah doesn't just protect me when I'm inside the house. 
My mezuzah also protects me when I'm outside of the house. Unlike your king that is uh, scared and is hiding inside his uh, kingdom over there and needs you to protect him on the outside, my king doesn't need me to protect him. My king, if I put the mezuzah and it's a good mezuzah, my king protects me inside my house and outside my house. This is why it baffles me sometimes when people are so unaware, unaware of the, the power of Torah, that they simply just choose to not believe, choose to ignore, choose to do a lot of different things, but really to their own detriment, to their own detriment. And all of these people that are so-called rationalists that speak against the, the, uh, the supernatural and the miracles, apparently they never lived a single day of a, a life of a Jew. Every single Jew experiences miracles every single day. Some are as great as the one we just talked about, some are seem like they're smaller but the ramban says there is no bigger or small everything is a miracle and so when people tell you that they're against mystical teachings and uh, all types of mysticism and miracles it simply means these people perhaps we should question whether they're even jewish we should question whether they're even jewish because the jewish neshama knows that the only reason why there is a jewish people is because it is a miracle the fact that we still are here in the world and all of the tormentors that we had, all of the destroyers that we had, all of the enemies that we had, the greatest civilizations that in size and power that ever existed, all of them tried to destroy us. Every single one with no exception. Every single one, whether it's the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, uh, uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the Spaniards and uh, the Turks, every one of them tried to destroy us. Every one of them, and yet none of them are here and we're here. What is that? What is that, the uh, good luck? No, it's 100% a miracle. But in order to have, in order to earn these types of miracles, a person doesn't necessarily need to be Jewish. These miracles also sometimes happens to non-Jews. But to be aware that this is a miracle from Hashem, a person needs to be glued to the Torah, glued to the Alacha, glued to what it says in the Torah to understand what is the Torah. To just read the Torah like it's some storybook, Chash Shalom. To read it like, oh, we like the narration, we like these people, this is my favorite character, like it's some type of comic book, that's not going to earn you any brownie points in Shemaim. So that's why the Chazonish has been emphasizing the, uh, the critical nature of, of actually understanding how important Alacha is. Because if you know it and you live by it, your life turns into one big miracle. Your understanding of the problems in your life turns into something that you know is worth something very valuable. This is why a person needs to know Allah. But at the same token, to just know Allah, know the laws without knowing how to apply them, which comes from Musa, of course, it's, it's, it's going to be to no avail. To know just Musa, to know ethics, but not know the actual rules, again, also will be to no avail. It will be somebody that wants to do something good, like giving out a Torah newsletter, but in an area that there's no iluv. So he wants to do something good, but by doing that something good, he's causing everybody to sin. So of course, a person needs to know both. Now the question is, who are the great, who are the great among us? Who are the greatest Jews? Everybody likes to think that they know the greatest people. This guy, he invented something. That guy, he's a good speaker. This guy, he is uh, very successful and donates a lot. But in reality, who are the greatest Jews? Who are the greatest Jews? Now, of course, in order to be the greatest Jew, you have to identify yourself as someone that's Jewish according to what Judaism is. 
if you consider yourself Jewish just because your mother is Jewish, but you yourself are desecrating Shabbat, you're not keeping kosher, you're not keeping really anything. In reality, there's nothing that's making you Jewish. There's nothing that's making you Jewish. A lot of times people say, no, I'm just as Jewish as you are, even though I don't keep the Torah. Question is, how? What makes you Jewish? Now, if you're going to say, no, because my mom is Jewish. Yeah, but your mom is Jewish, making you a Jew. That's according to the same Torah that you're desecrating. So you can't tell me that you believe in a Torah and that Torah is the one that's making you Jewish when at the same time you're going against the Torah. So in reality, what makes you Jewish? If you're going to say, yeah, but I eat Jewish food. You know, I'm Sephardi, I eat such and such food. I'm Ashkenazi, I eat such and such food. Habibi, a lot of non-Jews eat that food too. Does that make them Jewish also? No. What makes a person Jewish? If they follow what the Torah says. If they follow the actual halacha. They follow what the halacha is. What is the law? Now, in order to know who the greatest Jews are, the Chazanish goes into it and gives us many sources. And he says, in uh, chapter 3, section number 21, in the Gemara Maseret Kiddushin, page 49b, it says, if someone engages himself to a woman on the condition that I am a Torah scholar, one does not say that he must be like Shimon ben Azai in order for the engagement to take effect. And if he says, on the condition that I am wise, one does not say that he has to be as wise as the sages of Yavne, as Rabbi Akiva and his companions. So first, let's explain this first part. In the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, we, uh, we learn that there's a whole uh, sugya over there where, say, someone, a Jew, wants to take another Jewish woman to be his wife. And he says, be my wife. Be my wife. But there has to be some type of kinyan. There has to be some type of exchange. Not just words. There has to be some type of exchange. He says, be my wife. Now, if he gives her a ring, he gives her a puta, and she takes it, that's it. She's his wife. That's the uh, that's in essence the, uh, the 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 you know the, the first part, but if he doesn't have it, he says, "Be my wife on the condition that I am a Torah scholar." I'm a condition of a Torah scholar. The Gemara goes and elaborates. What if he's not a Torah scholar? What if he's a complete uh, ignoramus? He says, "Oh well, if he's going to work towards, he's going to start learning and so on and so forth. That once he becomes, then yeah, then this this actually becomes this takes effect." But the Gemara says, but if he says, if he uses this type of, uh, uh, which obviously is not applicable uh, today, people don't do this anymore today, uh, because we don't live in necessarily in a, uh, uh, a world of Torah like uh, it used to be in those days. But nonetheless, a, uh, if a person was going to say, uh, marry me on the condition that I am a Torah scholar, he doesn't say that I'm a Torah scholar that is like Shimon ben Azai. Or that I'm wise like Rabbi Akiva. Why, why not those two? Why not those two? Because Shimon ben Azai was one of the Tanaim and so was Rabbi Akiva. And these were two of the greatest of their generation and thereafter and some even say before a, uh, in, in certain aspects. They were something out of this world. And in so many words, somebody says that I'm uh, marry me on the condition that I am going to be a Torah scholar like Shimon ben Azai, in essence, you're saying, oh, this guy is delusional. Why? There's no chance for him to be like Shimon ben Azai. 
if he says marry me on the condition that i'm wise like rabbi akiva this person uh, needs to be instituted why it's not possible for him to be like uh, rabbi akiva simply not simply not if he says i'll be a torah scholar yeah that's possible that means he perhaps does have all of his marbles in his head and it is very possible that he becomes wise and he becomes a Torah scholar if he applies himself he can be but if he says no on the condition that i'll be the greatest sage of the generation no we know that this person is not serious so the chazunish uses this particular example of how these two chachamim are specified and not everybody else they're not mentioning other people they're not mentioning other sages even though there were many great sages many great sages that we've mentioned in the shulim and we'll continue mentioning in shulim but none of them were used rather these two and in multiple places so the chazoni says from here we see that in the memory of our sages the outstanding sages were ben azai and rabbi akiva that the sages themselves in their mind the greatest were these two ben azai and rabbi akiva ben azai and rabbi akiva now you may ask how come ben azai shimon ben azai is not called rabbi shimon ben azai and rabbi akiva is called rabbi akiva why the uh, Gemara elaborates on that that when a person is identified simply by his name and those times he's even greater than a rabbi his position is even greater like you know the uh, you have Yeshua Benun or you have Jeremiah or you have Isaiah they were not uh, even though sometimes they're called Rebbe from the people but they're identified by their first name why because their name is even greater than the title their name is even greater than the title this is also the reason why Moshe Moshe is called Moshe Rabenu rather than Rabenu Moshe. The title comes after his name. Why? Because his name was even greater than the title of Rabenu. But this doesn't necessarily mean that Ben Azai was greater than Rabbi Akiva. It's just that Shimon Ben Azai was identified uh, without the title of Rabbi. But they were both extraordinary sages. And it says here that in three places in the Gemara, the Chazuni says, we find that the sages say, the statement i am like ben azai and remember the chazonish is not using there's no computer in this age of chazonish so he knows the entire gemara practically by heart and he says three places in the gemara it mentions this statement today even with a computer i don't think you could probably find it so easily but nonetheless the, the minds of the sages is not like uh, an ordinary genius mind and not only after you learn their torah do you start understanding how different the mind of the sages are versus a regular genius you know among the nations so he says that in three places in the gemara the sages themselves use the statement i am like ben azai in the gemara masechet Iruvin, page 29a in masechet sota page 45a in masechet kiddushin page 20a and in all of them the disciples of these sages made use of this statement which showed that the speaker was experiencing a moment of enlightenment in order to question them on matters of alakha one of the chachamim one of the disciples of benazai rabbi akiva was speaking to the others they were questioning him about specific things and at times in this three specific times 
They said, I am like Ben Azai. You're asking me a question? I'm like Ben Azai, meaning that right now I have so much divine assistance, so much siyat dishmaya, you can ask me anything and I'll give you as clear an answer as Ben Azai. They didn't use this freely whenever they felt like it to show off, but sometimes a person is so in tuned with the Torah that they have the siyat dishmaya that you could literally ask them anything you want and they'll give you not only an answer, but an answer that's clear that even a six-year-old could understand. And this is what they were in essence saying. I am uh, right now, I'm like Ben Azai. So they were like the example of all examples of enlightenment. Example of all examples of clarity of Torah. And example of all examples of the knowledge of Torah. And from this... We learn that when the greatness of Ben Azai is mentioned without specifying what sort of greatness, it means his greatness in Alakha. So the question is, why, what was he so great in? Maybe he was good at uh, telling stories. Maybe he was great at uh, congregating a community to pray with the Minyan. Maybe he was great at raising money, building institutions, giving Musar. What was he great at? Hamim said, no, no. He was his greatness that's constantly mentioned is his greatness in Allah. And what's the proof? It says in one of the sources, when Rava, which is one of the later sages that's practically mentioned in every page in the Gemara, when Rava said, I am like Benazai, he was pressed upon to prove that he was extremely well versed in the laws of Iruvin, which is a uh, laws uh, pertaining to uh, setting domains, like I mentioned before in the story of Ravavadya, to make an Iruv. You can't just decide, listen, this is Eruv and that's it and just walk away. You have to follow the rules of how to make an Eruv, specific things, specific places, specific conditions. And he was asked, Rabbi says that uh, I am like Ben Azai when they asked him, well, you know, do you, uh, are you sure? And they asked him, he said, I'm like Ben Azai. And he says, I can answer any questions. So what they start asking him? They started asking them some of the most difficult halachic questions. The, the questions in regards to Iruvin are some of the most difficult questions. Many say that Masechet Iruvin is the most difficult Masechet in the Gemara, in the Shas. And he started uh, giving them the details of Iruvin, of setting domains for Shabbat. And he was then asked how many apples are needed in order to constitute a meal that sets a domain. Now, Without learning a little bit of Gemara, a person is not going to have a clue. What, what are they talking? What does an apple have anything to do with anything? So part of making an iruv is to have a uh, meals. There has to be meals in uh, specified locations. As if you are, in essence, and I'm oversimplifying it, but as if you are in the same house. So for example, you have a, uh, you want, uh, there's let's say uh, two friends. Two friends, and they want to go back and forth to each other's house on Shabbat, but there's no iruv. And they want to make an iruv uh, between each other. So they have to put a uh, meal, a meal in, in the uh, two houses, as if they are both one of the same houses. Again, I'm oversimplifying it. Do not use just this to decide that you have an iruv in your community. You want to make one, you have to follow many, many other uh, intricate details and know a lot of other intricate details. The question is that the Chachamim are asking them, yeah, but what if they don't have bread? What if they don't have bread? Can they use apples? He says, yes, you can use apples. Well, how many apples? Meaning, how many apples 
constitute a, a meal, a shiur of a meal. And you have to have two meals. So he had to give them the exact answer of how many apples constitute two meals. And this clarity of the halacha doesn't only require him to know the law itself, but the law of specific conditions, the weight the, of, of the apples, the uh, uh, all types of intricate details that literally you needed to know him in general, needless to say, to know it all by heart. Then he gives another example. The Chazonish gives another example that uh, when Abaye, one of the other great sages in the Gemara that's in practically every page, uh, constantly debating with, uh, with uh, 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 Enigmara, when Abaya made this statement, he was pressed upon to prove that he knew the laws of the Eglarufa, which is the, uh, uh, the laws pertaining to a uh, murdered person that was found outside of a city and was asked about the case of two bodies found, one on top of the other. So, the uh again if you read this on the surface no idea what's going on so explain a little bit if there is chas v'shalom a uh, person that this is a uh, biblical mitzvah and this is in the torah and uh it's called the eglarufa the the laws of the eglarufa which is if there is a person that is not part of the town it's not part of your of your community but he uh, perhaps uh passed by the community and somebody murdered him. Now, when uh, the, uh, the, the murderer obviously is not found, but they find the body, but the body is right on the border of two cities. It's right on the border of two cities. One Jewish city next to the other city. So how do you decide which city is the one responsible for it? Which city is responsible for it? Once you, the, the, the uh, uh, the Chachamim come and determine which city is uh, responsible for it by following specific uh, uh, rules. Then they take a uh, a gla and they uh, they kill it, not slaughter it in a kosher way, but rather hit it in the back of the neck. Uh, in essence, it's a rebuke to the community. Nonetheless, it's a uh, and then they're responsible for the body. But the question is, if they asked Abaye not just about this. They knew he knew the traditional halacha. They said, but what if you find two bodies, one on top of the other, exactly in the same place, one on top of the other? How do you decide if one is closer to the other one, the details, which one comes first? Maybe it's in a hill, maybe it's in a day. You know, there's a lot of intricate details. Not, uh, it's not so simple. So when Abaya was answering these questions, he says, I'm like Benazai, meaning even a question like this, no problem, I can answer you. As difficult as it may be. In the, uh, the Chazonish continues saying that in the Gemara Masechet Bechorot, page 58a, it's asked, wasn't Ben Azai capable of determining which of the two opinions brought, uh, brought there is right? Does it not say in the Bereta that Ben Azai says that all of the sages of Israel are like a piece of garlic skin next to him, except for the bald one, which he's referring to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's uh, name among the sages was the bald one. So we see that Ben Azai was speaking of his own greatness in Allah, specifically, that he must have known the Allahot of the tithe of the livestock. 
So this is again another one of the uh, one of the examples that the Gemara brings. That the uh, Gemara brings, where the uh, when they asked Ben Azai, are you uh, sure about this specific things? Because some of the sages disagree with you. Ben Azai says to them, all of these sages that you're telling me their opinions, they're like a peel next to me as far as the clarity that I have about what the rule is. Except for Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, we're on the same level. If he disagrees, I have to evaluate what he says. But the rest of the one that you mentioned, even though they're all good, they're all good people, they're all chachamim, they're all tzaddikim, they're all great, but when it comes to this specific rule, they're all like a garlic peel next to me. So here we also see that the chachamim, although they were very modest and very humble, they also knew where they stood. This is also one of the misunderstandings that people have about uh, when it says that... uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was anav mikol adam, that he was the most humble man that ever lived, that even if he uh, saw a person that has tzarat, that has a, uh, both the spiritual and a physical disease called tzarat, he would still see the good in him and see that this good in him is, is better in some aspects from, uh, from Moshe Rabbeinu. This doesn't mean that Moshe Rabbeinu thought that he was a loser of some kind because we see that when he rebukes the people in all of the, in the entire book of uh, Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a period of 36 days that Moshe Rabbeinu is rebuking Am Yisrael week after week, week after week, the last 36 days of his life. And that was the book of Deuteronomy. And we see that when he talks to them, he's not talking to them uh, in a uh, position of weakness, he's talking to them with strength. He's talking to them with confidence. He knew exactly where he stood. But this did not make him arrogant over them. This did not make him think that he is better than everybody else. He knew exactly where he stood. He knew exactly what his position was and so on. And that's also one of the things that people misunderstand. They think that humility means that you have to start thinking of yourself as a loser. This is not the case. This is as far from the case as possible. At the same token, this uh, some people want to say, okay, so I'm allowed to be proud of myself and, and show off my stuff. Also not, not, not true. Also not correct. A person needs to know there are certain things that you're allowed to be proud of and you should be proud of, but there's a way to be proud. And for that, we discussed a little bit more in detail in our series of the Igeret Agra. The, uh, the uh, Ramban wrote a letter with it. Uh, there's many details of humility and so on. I highly recommend for anyone who hasn't watched that series uh, to watch it. But the point here is that we see that Ben Azai knew exactly where he stood, but at the same token, he wasn't delusional. He wasn't delusional to think, no, no, I'm better than everyone, which is unfortunately what happens today on a regular basis, where someone who's not even better than the guy next to him, but he thinks he's better than everybody. So he's saying, listen, and it comes to this specific rule, I'm as expert as it gets. The rest of these opinions that you give me, they're like the uh, peel of an onion. But if you bring me something from Rabbi Akiva, that's something else. Also note that Ben Azai is one of the uh, four Chachamim that went to the Pardes. There's a very uh, famous Gemara in Masechet Chagiga, where you had several Chachamim go into the upper worlds. And uh, one of them was Rabbi Akiva. He went there and came back enlightened. Uh, one of them was Elisha ben Achel, uh, Elisha ben Avuya, 
who was called also Achel, he went there and he got uh, uh, confused and became a heretic as a result. And uh, Benazai, Benazai went there and he was so glued to the Shekhinah that he lost his, uh, his, uh, his uh, desire to live. He didn't want to leave there and he ended up dying. And one other Chacham went there and went crazy. Got, uh, got damaged. So those four Chachamim went to the Pardes. So Ben Azai was, once he went to the Pardes, felt the Shekhinah in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that's indescribable, had no desire to live anymore, and he ended up staying there. Ended up staying there. Ended up dying. So this uh, Ben Azai, this Ben Azai Kadosh says that when... Uh, when it comes to specific things, he knew exactly where he stood. Now, when it comes to Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, the uh, the Chazonish brings a Gemara in Masechet Menachot, page 29a, which says a uh, story that uh, is a well-known story, that when the uh, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, showed Moshe Rabbeinu, showed Moshe Rabbeinu all of the generations at Mount Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed Moshe Rabbeinu the Torah and a lot of different things. And also, at some point, HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed Moshe Rabbeinu all of the generations that will live, everything that happened in the past and everything that will happen in the future, all the generations that will be, until Mashiach comes. Until Mashiach comes. And at one point, he shows him Rabbi Akiva. How does he show him Rabbi Akiva? He sits Moshe Rabbeinu in the class of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is teaching his students in the class all types of alachas, all types of secrets from the crowns of the letters. From the crowns of the letters. Anyone that's familiar with the Ashuri script, the Ashuri writings, like you have a Sefer Torah, you'll see that the, uh, the Hebrew letters are not like the ones that you see in a, uh, on the internet or in some type of uh, 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 letter. But rather, the letters have like uh, these uh, uh, points coming out of them. These little crowns coming out of them. Sometimes they actually literally look like a crown. All types of things coming out of them. Now these are the, called the crowns. In English, they're called the crowns of the letters. And uh, Rabbi Akiva was already at such a high level. He was at the 50th level of Kedusha that he found different intricate details secrets and alachas that you can learn from these secrets from these different crowns so akadosh baruch Hu shows moshe rabenu this moshe rabenu is not familiar with what he's teaching he just received the torah he received the torah himself from, from akadosh baruch Hu, but he sees that someone is teaching torah but he has no idea what he's saying He's confused. And Moshe Rabbeinu started feeling bad. Started feeling self-conscious. Until Rabbi Akiva says at the end of the lesson, and everything that I just taught you comes from Moshe Misinai. Comes from Moshe Rabbeinu. Meaning that all I did is continue to extrapolate from what Moshe Rabbeinu taught us already at Mount Sinai. I didn't teach you anything that was not given to Moshe Rabbeinu. I just continued to extrapolate it, continue to delve deeper and deeper into it, which is the goal of the Chachamim. 
When HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the Torah, He gave us at Mount Sinai, He gave us the written Torah at Mount Sinai up to Parashat Itro, which is the parasha of the Matan Torah, because the Torah was given to the same generation that it's written about. So He didn't give them the written Torah until the end of the Torah, because then they would know the future, then they would know that uh, they, they would sin, in essence, He would make the choice for them. So obviously, He didn't give them the entire uh, uh, Torah, He gave them up to Parashat Itro, up to Parashat Itro, and He gave them the oral Torah. But the, the two major points that are critical to understand about Him giving them the written Torah and the oral Torah is that if you go to the Gemara in Masechet Chagiga, you'll see that over there it says that Hashem wrote the Torah 974 generations before He created the world. Before He created the world, already the Torah was written. So the most common question is, wait, if He already wrote the entire Torah, meaning you not only have the oral Torah, which was uh, uh, delivered orally until the generation of Rabbi Udanasi, so few thousand years after the world was created, over a thousand years after Moshe Rabbeinu got the written Torah, so many, many years. But this oral Torah remained oral for a long time. But this Torah was also at, the, at creation. But then it also talks about that the written Torah, the written Torah is something that Hashem wrote with black fire on white fire. Symbolic of uh, the, the, the Sefer Torah that you see in your synagogue is symbolic of the original Torah, where the scroll is white and the writing is always black. It can never be blue, it can't be green, it can't be on the other color. can't highlight it. This is the Torah scroll. Your, your chumash, you're allowed to highlight it, you're allowed to write something on the margins, uh, as long as you're not erasing any letters. If you actually have, let's say, a sidul or a chumash, and you see that uh, perhaps there's a printing error and they, uh, they, uh, one of the letters is cut off, you're allowed to complete that letter because it's a chumash. But if it's a, uh, uh, a Torah scroll, it has to be done in a different way. But nonetheless, this original Torah that was written in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, in essence, uh, realm was black fire on white fire. And this was the written Torah. This was the written Torah. And anytime someone writes a Torah scroll, the halacha is they have to copy it from an existing Sefer Torah. They can't do it from memory. You're not allowed to do it from memory. You have to be looking at another Torah scroll when you're writing a Torah scroll. That's the halacha. So it's important to know these specific rules. If someone's going to write a Sefer Torah, they need to know all, obviously all of the halachot. This is also the reason why the Gaon Vilna told his wife in the Geret Agra that teach the kids the Chumash to the point where they almost know the entire Chumash by heart. Why almost know the entire Chumash by heart? Because we don't want them to know the whole thing by heart where they stop having the desire to look at the Chumash and everything is known by heart. Because when it comes to the Chumash, it has to be recited. You have to look at it. You have to look at it. When you do your Shtay Mikrai Chatagum, even if you're a genius and you know all of it by heart, you have to look at it. You have to look at it. So the point is here is that when Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah, we're told that he got it up to Parashat Yitro. But how is it possible? And then the rest of it, the rest of what was written in the five books of Moses, was written in different parts during the next 40 years they were in the desert. Every so often, Hashem would tell Moshe Rabbeinu, here, 
write this, write this in the uh, Torah, and uh, things that happen. As they happened, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it. So this specific issue was something that was confusing for me personally, because wait a minute, if you're telling me that Hashem already wrote the Torah before the world was created, and Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah, so how come he didn't give him the whole thing? So the obvious answer is that uh, he, um, he, uh, he didn't want to tell him the future. But at the same token, you want to know if something is missing from that equation. So what's really, what's, what's really there? If Hashem already wrote it, if Hashem already wrote it, even though he didn't give it to Moshe Rabbeinu, that means that it was already written what Korach is going to do and what uh, the uh, Bilam is going to do and so on. So in essence, Hashem made the choice for everybody? No. So what was really there? What did Hashem write with black fire on white fire? He wrote all of the letters, all of the letters in the five books of Moses, 304,805 letters. All of them were written as if it was one word. As if it was one word. So for example, in the beginning of your every Chumash, in the beginning of every Chumash, you have Bereshit bara elokim et ha-shamayim ve-et That's what every Chumash says, right? Bereshit bara elokim et ha-shamayim ve-et But instead of it saying, when he first wrote it in the beginning, instead of it saying, Bereshit bara elokim et ha-shamayim ve-et it was just all four words, all five words, or seven words, were a single word. Were a single word. In fact, the entire Torah, the entire Torah was a single word. And as Hashem created the world, as Hashem created the world, He separated the letters at different places in order to make the words. So in essence, even though the entire Torah was already written well before 974 generations before the world was even created and he gave all of it to moshe rabbeinu he gave the whole thing to moshe rabbeinu what did moshe rabbeinu really do over those next 40 years did he write everything from scratch the Allah is you have to copy it from something so what did he do in essence he looked at the original word everything was a single word hashem told him where to separate the words where to separate the letters in order to make the words in order to make the words so let's say you have a uh, 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 the letters t-o-p uh, uh, b-o-t-t-o-m okay now if you just read it as, as a single word it doesn't make any there's nothing but for most people you already know that this is really two words if you stop at after the p and you move it and you make a a a, a space between the p and the next uh letter b and you in essence make it into two words you now have top bottom so in essence that's what happened in the beginning the whole thing was a single word and the kadosh Bahu told moshe rabbeinu where to separate this long word into smaller words without changing the letters without changing the place of the letters just simply you know count three letters make a space count five letters make a space count two letters make a space count seven letters make a space and so on and so forth and that's how the torah was written that's how the torah was written 
So in essence, this we did receive the entire Torah at Mount Sinai, but as far as making it uh, what it is, that's, that's comprehensible to us, the events themselves had to take place in order for Hashem to, in order for Hashem to dictate where the space would take place, which shows obviously the divinity of the Torah, that a Kadosh Baruch Hu could have written anything in there, but he decided those specific words. Now, of course, this is also why you have many, many other secrets that are written in the Torah that are found through the words, in between the words, with all types of uh, systems that are used to f- by the sages to find different intricate uh, secrets within the Torah and to show that it's far, 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 and as far as possible from being simply a storybook. There's a lot of different intricate details that are there, including, most importantly, all of the laws, all of the laws that we have that are from the oral Torah, you will find in the written Torah, if you know how to look. And the sages, when they're writing that this or that is the halacha, is the law, they always have to bring what's called a source from a Torah. A source from a Torah. Now, the sources for the halachot have to come either from the actual uh, scripture itself, there has to be a verse that specifically says that law, that this is, uh, there's no other way to understand it, this is the law, this is the source, and that source can't be used for multiple laws. Use that verse for a law, that's it. That that verse can't be used for 17 laws that from now on you're going to use this verse for everything. Once it was decided by the sages that this verse is going to be for such and such law, that's it. That's the source. Now if you have a different law that's similar, you have to find a different verse in the Torah that says it. A different verse of the Torah showing how massive the Torah is. How massive the Torah is. Now, this is the main way of, of uh, how the sages extrapolated from the written Torah uh, in order to tell us where the sources are for the laws of the oral Torah. Because the oral Torah is, a, uh, in essence, part of the same thing. Oral Torah and written Torah is the same thing. It's, in essence, they go together. It can't be oral or uh, written one without the other. They both feed off of each other. Unlike what the Christians think, that only the written Torah is, uh, is what's divine. That's the confusion of the heretics and the Christians and idolaters. And the reason why they do that is because they know that the oral Torah is the one that completely uh, dishevels their entire belief because part of the oral Torah highlights the uh, idolatrous practices of their, uh, of their Messiah, of their false god, of their idols, and so on. Uh, but there's also other reasons too. Uh, that it completely destroys their entire uh, belief system altogether. So that's why the number one enemy of Christianity is the oral Torah. But Jews that are aware and of what the Torah is, know that the oral Torah and the written Torah are, are something that is glued to each other. They cannot, uh, uh, they cannot live separate from each other. They must be together. Now, the main source of all the halachot comes from this written Torah, and that's where the sages extrapolated from them. The other source is Moshe Misinayim. Moshe Misinayim meaning that there's tradition that this specific law, Moshe Rabbeinu himself taught it as part of the oral Torah. And there are certain times where it's specific that everyone knows this is the tradition. Moshe Rabbeinu said this is the uh, this is the halacha, even though there isn't a specific verse that is a uh, uh, stating exactly this, but we know this is from Moshe Rabbeinu. 
And there are some laws that are like that. Now, what if somebody brings, like the Christians like to bring, many times they like to bring their proofs from the Nevi'im Viktuvim, from the prophets and the writings. Can you bring an alacha from the prophets and the writings? Answer is no. You do not learn alacha from the prophets and the writings. Anytime you read Gemara, you are going to realize that little by little, by learning Gemara, learning the Talmud, you're little by little going to learn not only the entire oral Torah, but the entire written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, and also the entire Tanakh, and many other things. Everything is in that, in that Talmud. Everything is in the Gemara. So sometimes when the sages are debating their sources of which one is this and which one is that, they're going to use a source from the Nevim and Ketuvim, from the prophets and the writings. But this is not something that would determine what an Alacha is. This is what's called an Asmachta. An Asmachta is a supporting verse. It's not something that you can determine an Alacha from, but rather it's supportive to what your case is. But if you want this to be the Alacha, you have to give me a verse. Because surely the entire Tanakh is connected to each other. So the oral Torah, the written Torah, and the obviously the prophets and the writings, they're all connected. They're one of the same spiritual nervous system. So surely you're going to have certain things that are mentioned in the, in the five books of Moses that are repeated in one form or another in the rest of the Tanakh. So it's not a surprise. So when if, you're, if you found an Asmachta, you found a verse in the prophets, in Proverbs, in, uh, in, a, uh, in, in Psalms, or anything like that in the writings, then surely there is a source for that in the five books of Moses. It's in the five books of Moses also. But I can't use just your verse from Psalms or Proverbs or, or, or Lamentations or wherever it is to de- determine an alacha. That's an asmachta. Now, sure, there's a lot of lessons to learn from there. There's a lot of uh, different uh, secrets that are there. Uh, the secrets of Mashiach uh, 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 and the end of days, the war, and so on and so forth. A lot of it is you'll find throughout the entire Tanakh, not just the five books of Moses, throughout the entire Tanakh, but when it comes to the actual law itself, we have to have a source from the five books of Moses or Moshe Sinai. Or Moshe Sinai. Now, here you have... Moshe Rabbeinu uh, watch somebody take the Torah that he got at Mount Sinai. He learned the entire Torah with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He learned much more, much more than what he gave us. What he gave us is the essence of the Torah. He got the whole Torah, but he gave us the essence of the Torah because regular human beings cannot handle the real Torah in this world. He got, he saw the entire Torah, but he gave us the essence of the Torah. The real Torah will be able to learn in, in heaven, in Olam Abba. But when he went to the class of the future of Rabbi Akiva, he was confused at first. He was confused at first. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, why are you giving me the Torah if a thousand years or so, a little over a thousand years later, you're going to have somebody like Rabbi Akiva? Why don't you give him the Torah? It's worth it, to, according to Moshe Rabbeinu, it was worth it to delay giving the Torah by over a thousand years 
just to give it to this Rabbi Akiva, because that's how great he was. So the Gemara says, Hashem's response to him was that there is going to be a man who is going to live in a future generation, and his name will be Akiva ben Yosef. And he is destined to extrapolate from every minute detail of the Torah, multitudes and multitudes of halachot, as is brought in Gemara Masech 29b, as I said. So the, uh, the greatness of Rabbi Akiva was no less than Ben Azai, Shimon Ben Azai. That's why the Chachamim, anytime they are trying to tell the others that they are experiencing a moment of enlightenment where you could ask him anything, they're specifying these two people. Why? Because these two were the experts. But here we discovered that Ben Azai was an expert in Alacha. What about Rabbi Akiva? Says the Chazonish, we find that our sages regarded Rabbi Akiva's greatness specifically as being his knowledge of the obscure laws of Negaim and O'alot, which is matters of ritual impurity. As it says in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 67b, where the sages say to uh, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Akiva's rabbi, says to, uh, to Rabbi Akiva, says, what are you doing in the realm of Agada? Stay with Negaim and O'alot. And Rashi explains that Negaim and O'alot are mentioned because of the difficulty in understanding them. And those are the things that you are sharp with when it comes, not Agada. So here we have to explain what actually transpired here. The Chachamim were debating the details of what happened in the plagues of Egypt. And Rabbi Akiva said, when it comes to the plague of the frogs, comes to the plague of frogs, it says, initially it says frog in the verses in, in, in the book of Exodus, it says there was a frog, and then it says frogs. So we see that one, it says it singular, and then it says a uh, uh, plural. So Rabbi Akiva says from here we learn that originally there was one giant frog, one giant frog, and every time the Egyptians hit this giant frog, many, many frogs came out of this giant frog. It wouldn't die. More frogs would come out of it until it completely encompassed all of Egypt. So comes his rabbi, Rabbi Elazar. He says to him, Rabbi Akiva, with all the respect, Haggadah is not your expertise. You're not the best at Haggadah. I don't agree with you. I don't agree. You are very good in Lacha. All types of things. You're, you're amazing. Comes to Agada, No, no, you're not. Uh, because what you're saying is not right. It wasn't that one frog breeded, uh, you know, millions and millions of frogs. But rather what Torah is teaching us, according to Rabbi Lazar, is that one frog called all of its friends, all of the other frogs, to come to Egypt. Interestingly enough, that uh, today the most uh, well-known story of the details of the Makot, as regards to the frogs, is actually Rabbi Akiva's uh, Midrash. That it was one big frog, and every time you hit it, millions and millions of frogs would come out of it. Not Rabbi Elazar, his rabbi. Even though Rabbi Akiva wasn't uh, uh, as respected for his knowledge of Midrashim and Agadot as his uh, rabbi and other people were. But here we see 
that when Rabbi Akiva is praised, he's praised as the expert of halacha. Hence the reason why the Chachamim say, every time you want to know, you know, that, uh, that I'm experiencing a, a moment of enlightenment, I'm not experiencing a moment of enlightenment by telling you stories. No, I'm telling you right now I feel the siyate dishmaya because I have clarity to know the law. And the law, the halacha itself, that is what makes a person great in the world of the Torah. That's what makes a person great in the world of the Torah. And that's also why it is so uh, 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 really uh, upsetting at times uh, when you see people that literally don't even know how to read a responsa. Don't even know how to read a responsa. If I gave them Rav Ephraim's responsa, Achtov Israel, any one of the volumes, they wouldn't survive a single page. They wouldn't survive a single page. They wouldn't even understand what is actually being said there because the language is so high and it's not at their level. But yet they think that they are at a level to not only call someone like Rabbi Ephraim uh, uh, someone that's not knowledgeable, but even say that the poskim of the generation don't know anything and the Gdolei Adol don't know anything and the Rambam doesn't know anything. Only they know something. Them from their hole in the wall somewhere in the world, they know better than the Arizal, they know better than the Rambam, they know better than the, the, uh, the Rabbi Akiva, they know better than everybody else. They don't literally even understand the basic concept of the Jewish religion or the Jewish language, Hebrew, the Sfat HaKodesh, and what's the difference between Sfat HaKodesh and traditional Hebrew that's modern Hebrew today. They don't understand anything, but yet they have the audacity to even think they're allowed to disagree with any one of the Chachamim. This, unfortunately, Rabotai, is, is, is one of the prophecies uh, that's mentioned in the Gemara Masechet Sota, page 49b. Says that in a generation before Mashiach, chutzpat is going to be obnoxious people that have such nerve that it's going to be really uh, something beyond comprehension. How people literally do not even know what a scaffold is, what a knife is, but yet they're going to tell the surgeon how to perform a surgery. Literally, in the Torah world, you have people that do not even know basic, basic things. Basic things. But yet they feel they could publicly disagree with Dayanim, with Chachamim, with, with people that have not only delved into the world of the Torah much more than them, but people that are well respected as the Gdolim of the generation, this one and the one before. And yet they feel like it's okay to just disagree with them as if they're ordinary men. Now, really to truly appreciate what Chachamim are, a person has to learn halacha. Why? Because although learning Musar and learning Midrashim is extremely entertaining, stimulating, helpful, uh, it's great, it's my personal favorite, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, it's Ami Sel's personal favorite, even the Gemara says. Uh, it's, it's something that the Jewish Neshama connects to. But the point is, is that the halacha is is much more difficult much much more difficult and uh, both to learn and to teach but in order to de- to uh, define who is great who can be a gadolador who can be someone that's a talmit chacham it's all based on their knowledge of Allah 
not their knowledge of, uh, of, of Musal and otherwise. Now, of course, they have to be an ethical person and so on, but the point being is that the greatness of a Jew is determined by, uh, based on their knowledge of Allah. That's, uh, that's the main determining factor. Now, the Rav Avadiyah, Allah Shalom, when uh, he, before he became world-renowned Rav Avadiyah, when he was still an Avrech, uh, he started, gave many, many shulim, and he had a group of balibati, people that are workers, you know, working all types of field during the day, and come to a shul at night. You know, one guy's a plumber, one guy works with cement, another guy is a, uh, works with uh, different animals, and, you know, regular average blue-collar people. And after it finished, they come to a shul. Now, him with his vast knowledge of halacha and the countless sfarim that he wrote and the the, the psaks uh, that he that he issued and how many uh, how much torah he delved in only a kadosh who knows what did he teach them in the beginning he taught them stories taught them midrashim he taught them midrashim sometimes with some musar in them for many times more than half of the shiu more than half of the lecture would be just different stories, amazing stories of what happened with Moshe Rabenu and some of the tzaddikim and different uh, things that happened to Ami said throughout all the ages. And he had way with words and how an ability to, to narrate a story that literally all of these average people, these average people that just finished working with cement and working with the fields and animals and so on and so forth, they would come to this shoe and they would drink this up and they fall in love with it and then in the later part of the year he start giving them a few alachot and as they continued advancing he started increasing more and more alachot and eventually he said to all of these balibatim we're not talking about avrechim you know scholars that are coming to call all day we are talking about you know business people blue collar workers regular traditional people that have a day job but they're coming to learn Torah they're coming to issue and they're coming for after he saw that they're serious and they're coming for an extended period of time he would increase more and more alachot and then he would tell them okay now we're going to start learning from the books from the source itself and then I'm going to start testing you once a week once a week I'm going to test you well I should test even you know and this is what he did now, how come he didn't start with Alachot right away? Because first of all, most people, if they're not in love with the Torah, especially if they're working and so on, they, they don't like to learn Alachot. They find it boring. They find it uh, sometimes too difficult, uh, too burdensome. Most people think if they keep Shabbat, they don't drive on Shabbat and they eat kosher, they already view themselves as religious. You know, even though they may not even know half of the laws of shabbat they think that as long as they don't drive on shabbat they're already religious it's unfortunately very very far away from the truth so to teach them alachot right away you're gonna lose the crowd the other hand is that again most people think that they already know enough they already know enough so he wanted to get them in to get them to love the torah first love the torah first in a way that they find attractive they find interesting so you would give them all of these different stories these different lessons some lessons within a lesson some musar in it and then a little bit a little 
more and more alachot and eventually literally started testing them started testing them once a week and the his sons say that on shabbat they uh, it was full of tension why because the the rav Ravadia, would be studying for the test he would be studying to issue them a test the next day now all of these balibatim all of these regular blue collar people what happened with them what happened with all of them they stayed blue collar blue collar people they stayed many of them stayed farmers and truck drivers and uh and, and, and cement workers and so on but they knew Torah but not only that they loved the Torah and because of that literally all of their kids all of the kids of all of these people ended up becoming every single one of them had kids and all of them already were breathing breathing the love of the Torah that their father got from the shoe of Ravavadya and they all lived a life of Torah and became pursued the Torah even further than their parents did so here we see that the fruits the fruits sometimes they take a generations to come that the fruits but nonetheless don't think that the uh the tree itself is something to ignore even the tree gets better even the tree even the parents got better and that's one of the the, the difficulties that you have today where you have schools different rabbis you know having building a yeshiva unfortunately sometimes they don't see much success with certain kids part of the reason is because the although the teaching in the school could be great unfortunately the main student doesn't show up to class who's the main student the parent the parent doesn't show up to class if the parent sends the kid to a yeshiva and pays the money or gets a discount or whatever the case may be and the kid goes to yeshiva and he learns the halacha and he learns the midrash and he learns the this and he learns the that and the rabbi likes the kid and he treats him good and everything is good but when the kid goes home he sees his parents are not exactly in tune with the torah he sees that his parents sometimes they make fun of the torah sometimes they care less about it sometimes they say listen you're jewish so you go to yeshiva but don't worry you don't have to be there forever eventually you're going to be a businessman like your father the kid sees that the torah is not very valuable in, the, in his house what ends up happening all of the teaching that he's learning in yeshiva most of it goes into the garbage why because the parents are destroying it and this is one of the pitfalls of jewish education today where the parents sometimes are willing to commit financially to send the kid to a yeshiva but they're not willing to commit spiritually to do tshuva themselves to to commit to Torah life themselves because if the kid goes to the best yeshiva in the world but the parents are still disrespecting the Torah are still ignoring the Torah are still living like as if they're secular or as if they're modernized the yeshiva education is not going to bring anywhere near as many fruits as it should and in many cases it'll be a complete failure but it's not the fault of the yeshiva it's the fault of the parents and this is one of the things that a person needs to know is that the to, to teach your kid alacha is not enough you yourself have to learn it you yourself have to live it and this is why when Rabbi Vadya was learning he was not only learning for the sake of making the Talmidei Chachamim of the future but he was teaching the parents 
and he himself merited to, to have uh, uh, something that almost nobody else had, which is literally every one of his uh, children is a uh, extraordinary Talmud Chacham. Every one of his kids is a uh, became a huge rav, a rosh kolel, a rishon letzion, an extraordinary chacham. In fact, one of our uh, dear friends, uh, Rav uh, Asaf ben Moshe, who's uh, Rav Gidon ben Moshe's brother, uh, he uh, told a story uh, to Rav Ephraim that uh, when uh, when his father passed away, when his father passed away, and they were having the levaya. Uh, one of the uh, people that came to uh, uh, to the Levaya and to, uh, uh, to to sit Shiva with them was uh, Rav Ovadia's son, Rav Ovadia's uh, late son, Rav Yaakov Yosef. Alava uh, Shalom. Rav Yaakov Yosef was uh, somewhat, something like a, a genius is an understatement. A genius is an understatement. Rav Vadya himself said about his own son, Rav Yaakov Yosef, that when he was 20 years old, he didn't know as much as his son when he was 20 years old. He says the amount of knowledge that he had was something out, out of this world. They asked him one time, how many times have you completed the Shulchan Aruch? How many times have you completed the Shulchan Aruch? And his answer was, when I got to 101 times, I stopped counting. I got to 101 times, I stopped counting. And he was a ish kodesh, ish emet, alacha is alacha. And the amount of knowledge that he had and clarity of the Torah that he had was literally like it was in front of him. Everything was in front of him, as clear as day. So when they were, when Rav Gidon ben Moshe and Rav Asaf ben Moshe were sitting shiva for their father, Rav Yaakov Yosef comes and uh, you know different Chachamim are saying different things and the, the problem is that you're not allowed to uh, to learn traditional Torah. You either learn Divrei Musar at the Levaya because the kids since their father passed away they're not allowed to learn uh, regular Torah. You can't tell them about the holidays or uh, or the Parashat Shavua because they're sitting Shiva. So the Alachai is you're not allowed to learn those things. You only learn Divrei Musar, words of Musar or laws that are specific to uh to mourning so Rav uh, Yosef says Rav Yaakov Yosef says listen I'm not uh, giving a, a shiur about the uh, Torah about Musa it's hard for me it's hard for me uh, let's let's learn some halachot let's learn some halachot of avilut of mourning okay now this is a group of Chachamim and they see this and they say this say, okay Shuchan Aruch, Ilchot Avelut, first halacha, Seif Tatata, this way it says, says the exact thing. But also, Chacham over here says this, Chacham over here says that, and he gives him the entire law with the different opinions. Okay, number two, next halacha, this way it says, Chacham over here says this, Chacham over here says this, word for word. And he goes through the entire section of the Shulchan Aruch, laws of Avelut, laws of mourning, by heart. No book. No book. Until they told him, okay, stop you before you finish the entire Shulchan Aruch. <laughs> this is the end of Lichol Avelut. Literally, the entire section. Not just the Shulchan Aruch, but all the different opinions. Completely by heart, word for word, as if he's reading it from a book. With sharp 
clarity and everything you could possibly imagine that you would want for yourself literally right there and then his understanding of Torah was something that is much unprecedented his own father said this is this is a uh, a person that's he says knew more than him at the age of 20 years old when he got the uh, disease he got cancer and uh, the doctor told him you have a month to live you have a month to live now the fools among us what do they do when they hear they have a month to live may none of us ever hear such news but nonetheless what does a fool think oh let's go take a vacation hang out with the family relax before i die that's 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 the mind of a fool what does someone that's glued to a shamanist torah do rab yaakov yosef brings his family together tells them the news and says i want you to arrange for me as many shiurim as possible for anyone that's willing to hear me and i said to him but abba it's dangerous you have chemotherapy shiurim yeah but abba it's difficult for you to move and trout shiurim it's all i want how many as many as you can possibly fit in a day every day this went on not for a month not for two months not for six months for a year he continued giving shiul after shiul after shiul for over a year literally over a thousand shiurim he made in the last year of his life over a thousand shiurim and the peoples many of the people loved the shiurim so much they would just go with him from shield to shield oh you're finishing here where are you going now okay they just follow him and they go to the next shield so he couldn't continue and say the same shield in different places every shield had to be different okay we're gonna learn okay over there we're gonna learn uh of morning over there we're gonna learn uh of yom tov okay over here we're gonna learn this every shield over a thousand shiurim in a matter of a year something that I think if I was a hundred percent healthy I wouldn't be able to do something out of this world and that's how he spent the last year of his life Mamash bought himself another year in his life full of shooting so for some fool to come out and say oh I disagree with such with Chachamim people like this it a person that understands the lives the contributions the sacrifices of the chachamim finds this so ludicrous there's no other way to find it than just being uh, offended by it to the highest extent but realizing that unfortunately these are uh, these people that make fun of the chachamim are like lost causes lost cause because they don't even understand what they're making fun of they simply don't understand what they're making fun of Rav Vadiyalava Shalom, he uh, writes in uh, in his Sefer uh, Yechaveh Dat, in uh, chapter 4, Alakha number 16, that uh, when, uh, just like the uh, Rambam writes in Chod Brachot, chapter 10, uh, Alakha number 14, the Shulchan Aruch writes in Or Chaim, uh, uh, chapter 224, Alakha number 6, and they are also quoting Masechet Bachot 58a. Uh, all of this is quoting the same thing, which is that when you see someone that is a Talmit Chacham, someone that's an extraordinary Talmit Chacham, not just somebody that learns Torah, but someone that's a well-known 
הגדול, סמואל השחכם, you make a blessing. What's the blessing? ברוך שחלק מחוכמותיו ליראיו. That uh, may Hashem uh, uh, be blessed for uh, sharing from his uh, wisdom to those that fear him. ברוך שחלק מחוכמתיו, מחוכמתו ליראיו. And when they, uh, when there is actually, as a side note, when you see a uh, very a wise man among the, uh, the nations, a, uh, let's say, a uh, Nikola Tesla, Aristotle, all these other people, there's also a blessing for those wise men among the nations. We recognize their wisdom also, and there's a blessing, but it's not the same blessing. The blessing on them is, Baruch Shenatan Michochmato Lebnei Basar. That may, uh, may, uh, may be blessed, may Hashem be blessed, that he gave from his wisdom to uh, flesh and blood. So the, uh, the Primegadim, one of the sages, uh, says, How come for Am Yisrael, for the sages among Am Yisrael, it says that uh, blessed is he that he shared his wisdom with those that fear him. So he shared his wisdom, but with the uh, wise among the nations, he gave wisdom. Why? Because the, uh, with Am Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch Hu became one with them. Am Yisrael, Hashem, and the Torah became one. So in essence, when someone acquires Torah, when someone is learning Torah, when someone toils in Torah to the extent where they literally, they're, this is how they think. They think in verses. They, they, they only see the world from a, from a sight of, a, uh, of, of the Torah then that person literally becomes one with Hashem. So it's in essence, he becomes uh, as if he's a part of Hashem. Of course, Hashem has no parts, but in essence, this is to, to make it understandable to our ear. It's Hashem chalak mi, mi, mi chokhmato. He uh, gave from his share as if he gave a piece of himself to this chacham. But for the, uh, for the wise among the nations, he gave them wisdom. He just gave them, he didn't share anything from himself. He gave them like, a, uh, you give somebody a candy. It's valuable, but it's obviously not the same. Not the same as giving somebody an arm. Not the same. Now, although the Chachamim, in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Gemara, in the Rambam, all psak that uh, when you see one of these Chachamim, you make a blessing. The Ramah and also uh, uh, some of the other uh, uh, Chachamim, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the Chachamim from Turkey, one of the Gedolim from Turkey, the Petach uh, say that we no longer have such Chachamim. Like the ones that the Gemara is talking about making a blessing for them. We no longer have such Chachamim. And uh, also, the, even the Rambam himself, the Rambam himself, even though he sucks that you have to make a blessing when you see Chachamim, he says that really, the, uh, the, the, the word gaon, the word genius, the numerical value of it is 60. Why? Why is it significant? Because the word gaon was only given to somebody like Rav Sadia Gaon and others that were called gaonim from that generation of gaonim of people that knew the entire shas by heart. The entire, not just the Talmud Bavli, the Talmud Yerushalmi, with all of the different commentaries and intricate details, and also all the different Mishnayot that were not discussed in the Talmud. They were Geonim, those people that knew everything. Literally by heart, without any, uh, you know, you ask them anything and everything, 
They knew it as if they're reading it. And he says, we don't have anybody. He writes himself, we don't have anybody that knows the entire uh, uh, Talmud by heart. He's describing it in comparison to the uh, generation of the Geonim that knew the Talmud Bavli, Yerushalmi, all the different uh, details like they did in the generation before him, which was uh, about 150, 200 years before him. And he says, we don't have anybody like that. He says, that's why I wrote the Mishneh Torah, because it's for, uh, you know, simple people like us. He, in his humility, thought that uh, he's like everybody else. The genius of all geniuses, the Rambam, from Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, until Moses, which is the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, there was nobody like Moshe. But he was so humble, he says, you know, I wrote the Mishneh Torah, because most people don't know the entire Talmud by heart, and they don't know where to find all of the laws within the Talmud. So I wrote the Mishneh Torah, so it's easy for you to find all of the laws. All of the laws you can find. You need the laws of uh, Shemitah, here you go. You want laws of uh, Avelut, uh, here you go. You want laws of Kashrut, here you go. Laws of Shechita, here you go. And Shabbat, here you go. You have everything. I already extrapolated from the Talmud, and it's for simple people like us, because... Nobody knows the Talmud by heart anymore like the previous generations. And this is, uh, this is his humility. But nonetheless, this is how it used to be. Today, we only wish to know uh, not uh, just uh, the, the Rambam, just even the Shulchan Aruch, which is smaller than the, than the, the Rambam. He didn't cover as much, the Shulchan Aruch didn't cover as much as the Rambam did. But we paskin like the Shulchan Aruch, and all places the Shulchan Aruch uh, Paskin, but anytime he doesn't, we go by the Rambam. That's that's generally how it works. But either way, the uh, the Alakha and the Rambam is uh, already discussing that uh, you have to say this blessing when you see a Chacham. But there are some Chachamim, like the Rama, like uh, I said, the uh, the Petach uh, Gvir, that say, no, we don't have such Chachamim, and therefore there's no one to make such a blessing on, even if that's a Gdolado comes Rav Uvadya in his Yechavedat and he brings sources and he says, no, you know, with all due respect to the Chachamim that said that we don't do the blessing on, uh, on the Chachamim, I disagree. We have enough Chachamim that say, you do. You do do the blessing. We have the Rambam, we have the Gemara, we have uh, other places. And therefore, we do the blessing. We give the blessing if you see a Chacham. Now, how do you know who is considered a Chacham that you do a blessing on? First of all, he gives the description what they have to do. They have to be someone that is a, uh, not only learning Alakha, but is an expert in Alakha. An expert in Alakha, and is also a, someone that's a Dayan. He's a Pusek, he's a Dayan. He's someone that is a, uh, not just uh, learning for himself, but is someone that is a uh, well-renowned as a uh, to uh, to be a uh, 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 someone that's uh, exercising this knowledge in Dayanut. Also, is giving shiurim and has yirat shemaim, which means if he's a dayan, if he gives shiurim, if he's an expert in the laws, he knows all of it by heart. But he is like one of these people that has no fear of Hashem. Then, you don't do a blessing on him. One ingredient is missing, there's no blessing. But if he has all of those, Ravadia Paskins, same thing as the Rambam, same thing as Shulchan Aruch, same thing as the Gemara, 
you have to make a blessing when you see him you have to make a blessing so here we see that when a person becomes such an expert in halacha they get to a point where you have to literally make a blessing when you see them you have to make a blessing when you see them if their book falls on the floor you pick it up and you have to kiss it but the rest of these joes that like to make fun of the torah the rest of these joes that don't even understand the torah not only you don't make a blessing on them their book falls on the floor you don't even have to pick it up you don't even have to pick it up what are they reading they wrote a comic book they wrote harry potter harry potter falls on the floor you care harry potter falls on the floor you have to kiss anything no that's also one of the biggest differences between the Torah world and the secular world. As great as people think they are in a secular world where they achieved major milestones of acquiring wealth that's not even theirs and acquiring uh, buildings that are is, is, is only temporary and all types of influences that are an imaginary uh, illusion. In reality, if, if they leave the world tomorrow... It's as if they were never here it's as if they're nowhere here if they wrote a book that book you could throw it in the garbage you could read it in the bathroom but if a chacham if a chacham writes a book that book ever hits the floor you have to pick it up in kisses that book you can't read in the bathroom that book is something you have to respect no different than how you respect the sefer torah so when a person understands that you have to respect the work the, the, of the chacham to that extent needless to say you have to respect the chacham so when you have fools making fun of the chachamim or publicly disagreeing with them it's such ignorance to such a high level you're not even sure like if these people are even aware of what they're doing and unfortunately this is not a new thing this has happened throughout the generations and it happened to Ravavadya. it happened even to Moshe Rabbeinu there's no uh this is not a new thing it was a uh, uh, one time Rabbi Vadya, he uh, he saw that there is a uh, that there is a uh, uh, issues among certain people where uh, if let's say the the wife uh, breaks her hand or her leg and she has a cast on, then uh, she, and she doesn't go to the mikveh. Now uh, this can create some major shlombite problems uh or this can create major sins where the husband goes with her anyway uh because uh he doesn't care whether she has a uh, cast on and he doesn't care if she went into the mikveh or not he has needs so Vadya reviewed this and paskin alakha that the uh cast is not a uh, is not considered chatzitza it's not considered separating and she's allowed to go to the mikveh with the uh, cast on lest she doesn't go to the uh to the mikveh and you end up doing a her and her husband a uh, sin of karet now when he came out with this alakha immediately some of the uh people over there mainly ashkenazim went against them started writing notes started writing writing all types of things against them and surely they did not review the alakha anywhere nearly as much as he did but they publicized things against him as if he is a uh, heretic that believes in a foreign god and this was not the only time this was not uh, even close to uh to the only time there was another time where uh, he uh saw that sometimes a woman forgets 
to do the the uh, the Bdikan time. And after toiling and toiling over the Torah, he says that if she forgot, she has 13 and a half minutes, 13 and a half minutes after the sundown. When he came out with this extra 13 and a half minutes, which was an extraordinary chidush, this is not like this is not like what you're supposed to wait 13 minutes, but if she forgot during, during the day, she could wait up to 13 and a half minutes. When he came out with this, they got a bunch of rabbis to sign a letter to take all of his books and throw them in the garbage. Take all of his books, throw them in the garbage. To not publish anything. Ravadia saw what they were doing. Before they published all the books, he said, No, I want to add another page. Add another page to the uh, to the book. What's another page? Last page. Last page I want to write. He writes, and I am not retracting my opinion because I wish all of the alachas that I ever spoke about and wrote about would, uh, were as clear to me as this being 100% emet. And he writes this in his book. And he publishes this. And these different people decide to go against him. And they try to bring a letter to Rav Tzion Abba Shaul. Rav Tzion Abba Shaul, even though he was a very, very dear friend of Rav Avadia, there were many times that they passed differently. They had a machloka between them, but nonetheless, they were still best friends, still loved each other, still neighbors, still chavuta, but they don't always agree on everything. When they brought this letter to Rav Tzion Abba Shaul to sign, they brought him to sign, sign against Rav Avadia. Rav Tzion Abba Shaul looks at all of these so-called respectable people that signed and the people that brought them and he looks at them and he says if you want to live if you want to live you want to stay alive past this year you don't ever publicize this letter and you tell all of these rabbis that signed against Ravovadia that they're taking a life risk of course this surprised everybody because they know that Rav Tzion doesn't always agree with Rav Vadya. so what's the problem this is a disagreement you have to write he's wrong over here he said if you ever understood how much how much Rav Vadya toils before he paskins an halacha you would never dare question him on a single thing and not only you're questioning him but you're saying to destroy his books to go against them to, that, that he's wrong your your life is at risk just like the Gemara promises person that goes against simply his life is in danger simply put he's only going to bring himself tragedy it's a promise from the Torah why because the Kadosh Baruch Hu is much more zealous over the protection of his Chachamim than even for his own honor and Rav Tzion says when I saw even after Ravadia became the great that he became i took a flight with him one time now, of course everybody learns everybody studies everybody teaches all these is not is not an average person he's a kodesh kodeshim he's, he's one of the other he says one time i was on a flight a 16 17 hour flight with Ravavadia next to me watching him study watching him learn torah throughout the entire flight said made me weak it's something 
I didn't think it's humanly possible to be that dedicated. And we're talking about one of the most dedicated people in the world saying this about Rabbi And you think you could just go against them, disagree with them, discount his opinion, and even mock it? This is why, Rabotai, it's very, very important for a person to know that when someone becomes a gadoladol, it's not because they're a good speaker. It's not because they wrote good books. It's a decision from Shemaim. It's a decision from Akadosh Baruch Hu himself. This is who I want to represent me. This is who I chose to be my representative. Because there are many Chachamim throughout all of the generation. There's no nation in the world that ever had as many wise people as the Jewish people, despite our size being much smaller than all of the other nations. Still, there has never been a nation with as many wise people as the Jewish people. Simply put, this is a fact, not a theory. You could look at it in every aspect. There's simply no nation that has as many wise people as the Jewish people. And despite all of that, not all of them became the leaders of the generation, the Gdolei Ador, the, the, the Moses of their generation. Hashem specifically decided who's going to be the Gadol and when they're going to be the Gadol. When he decided that this person, that this Tzaddik, that this Gadol is going to be a Gadol, that's what it was. It was a decision from Shemaim. It was a decision from Shemaim, no different than how it's going to be a decision one day from Shemaim of who's going to be the Mashiach. Hashem decided there are many Chachamim, but not all of them got to the same greatness. But the ones that got to greatness, it wasn't because they were good writers and it wasn't because they were very studious. Although they were both, but it wasn't because of that. It's simply a Kadosh Bachu deciding, this is my representative. This is the Moses of his generation. And Baruch Hashem, when a person understands the, the value of the Chachamim, he does exactly as Rav Yitzchak uh, Yosef wrote to us in a letter. He doesn't move right or left or anywhere out of their hands. He stays in their hands, holding their hands like a little baby. Where you want me to go? Right? Okay, I'm going right. How about this? Don't tell me where. I'm just going to go. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Why? Yagadol. That's, that's how we know where to go. That's how we know where to go in Judaism. We don't know where to go based on, you know, who I like. We don't know where to go based on uh, who's most popular. That's not how we know where to go in Judaism. Rabbi Akiva teaches Am Yisrael is like a dove. And the Chachamim, the Gedolei Ador are like the wings. Where when Am Yisrael uses its wings, it flies. And when it doesn't, it crashes and dies. That's what one of the greatest Gedolim that ever lived says about Am Yisrael, Rabbi Akiva. When a person understands that this gedula, this 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 uh, significance, is established by the comprehension of Allah, by the delivery of Allah, by the understanding of it, by knowing exactly where and why to paskin, when to be lenient, when to be stringent, look for ways to be lenient but still Allahically one hundred percent kosher. Don't look to be stringent. Fools can be stringent. Fools can be stringent. 
And that's also one of the things that you see among many people that are new. Bale tshuva, new converts, or simply people that are ignorant. They want to be stringent everywhere and terrorize everyone that is their victim along the way, thinking that that's what makes them religious. Being stringent does not make you religious. Being stringent makes you a fool. In the eyes of the Torah, if you're stringent in the wrong places. Because the Gemara in Yerushalmi says, just like it is forbidden, it's forbidden to make the prohibited permitted, it's also forbidden to make the permitted forbidden. And a person that decides, no, I'm going to be stringent here. And there's no real reason of why they're stringent. They just want to be stringent. If you're just doing it yourself, you want to bring a stringent in yourself, that's one thing. But if you want to say everybody else is a sinner because your stringency, that's a mistake and a half. One time a person came to Rav uh, Mordechai Eliyahu, Rav Shalom, and he uh, says to him, Rabbi, I want to ask you, uh, uh, you know, about uh, my uh, Shabbat. I uh, started taking on the uh, stringency to observe Shabbat for an extra hour. What does the Rabbi think of that? Am I growing? So Rav Mordechai Eliyahu says to him, well, let me ask you something. When you, uh, now that you're keeping Shabbat for an extra hour and you're going to the synagogue an hour early and pretty much by the time you finish praying for Shabbat, you see people still driving to shul because for them, Shabbat hasn't started yet because they're starting at the normal time, an hour after you. Do you view them as sinners? Tell me the truth. And the guy says, you know what, Rabbi? You're right, I do, I do, right? Maybe they should. Amodechai Eliyahu says to him, I forbid you from keeping Shabbat an extra hour. Go back and be like everybody else. If your stringency that you brought on yourself is something that makes you think that everybody else is wicked, then your stringency is not a good stringency. It's an unhealthy stringency. Don't do it. Don't do it. But if you're stringency on yourself, you still realize that everybody's perfectly fine. You just have a stringency. That's a different story. That's a different story. And that's unfortunately one of the things that people don't understand. They want to sometimes be stringent because they think that's what makes them closer to Hashem. Unfortunately, today, there's so much confusion when it comes to Torah that people think that the standard stuff that we teach is stringencies. When in reality, everything that we teach is the basic minimum. Everything that we teach is basic minimum. The fact that a lot of people don't know it is a sad reality, but nonetheless doesn't change that it's the basic minimum. I generally don't teach stringencies. Why? Because we don't even know all the basics yet. Needless to say, stringencies. Stringencies are unnecessary. Let us just be experts in the basics. And that's one of the things that the Gdolim, the sages and the generations are experts in, to know exactly when to make the leniencies lenient and the stringencies strict. Uh, Rav, uh, Rav Gozinski, Allah Shalom, was, had a uh, ability to, to find the uh, permissible leniencies in many places and issue halachot that would sometimes drive other chachamim crazy. How did you find 
How did you find this leniency? Where did you do this? And sometimes people that were not anywhere near as experts in it as he was would sometimes go against him. But he was so committed to Am Yisrael there was one time when he got a letter that uh, his daughter was uh, on her deathbed. He immediately took out of all the letters that everybody wrote him that uh, to uh, to tell them what to do, what what's the alacha and so on. He took the seventy most critical letters, and right away, over a matter of a couple of hours, wrote answers as fast as possible to tell them exactly what to do. Answering the seventy letters, as soon as he completed the seventieth letter. He was notified that his daughter died and obviously he wasn't able to continue uh, doing his work because he had to sit Shiva for his daughter. But that's how much he cared about making sure that people knew and were clear about what to do when it comes to Torah. When somebody came to him and says, but how do you issue these leniencies? How do you issue this leniency with this such and such cow in this city or this such and such this? And he says to them, you know why you ask? You know why you question why I'm lenient there? Because you're not a Pusik. You're not a Pusik, and you don't have the burden of the people on your head. You're thinking from your own perspective, you on your own little family from your perspective, and you're thinking, ah, we can do it. We should just be stringent over there. You're not thinking of this entire city is full of poor people and if i don't find a leniency for that specific cow or that specific thing these poor people are not going to have anything to eat these poor people are going to end up sinning these poor people are going to end up abandoning everything so if i can find a permissible place to find a leniency in order to make the torah livable for them of course that's my job that's the job of a chacham a fool can make everything uh, stringent But only a chacham can find the places to be truly lenient and still be halachically correct. And that's one of the things that people sometimes don't understand. It's not about being strict. It's about sticking to the emet, sticking to the truth. When you stick to the truth, there is no point of debating. That's why these fools that request for us to debate, there's no point of debating. Why? This is the opinion of the Gdole Adol. Who am I to debate it? This is it. There's nothing else. No argument in the world will make them wrong. What's the point of debating it? This is what they said. This is the Psaka You only debate if you're not sure if you're right. But when you have the biggest sages of the generation say something, who are you to disagree? Who are you to even debate it? But that's unfortunately arrogance from people who think that they're greater than the sages, greater than the chachamim, greater than the scholars, and literally not even know right or left of what it's required to even be a chacham. Now many times, these chachamim will find different ways to bring salvation to the people whether it's through their psakalacha or their shiurim or different things. We'll finish off with a story. A story that you can find in the, uh, in the sefer. It's actually a series of sfarim. A series of sfarim that were written 
about Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, the Rishon Lezion in the previous generation, one of the Gedolei Adol, who was not only a, uh, a huge Chacham, but was beloved by the people like the Aaron coin of the generation. And in this uh, Sefer of, uh, called Aviem Shel Israel, the father of Israel, in volume number 6, page 264. All types of real stories, real life stories that happen with the Chacham. And this particular story is not something that happened a thousand years ago. This story was told about five years ago by someone that's not only alive, but someone that's famous that you can find them tomorrow if you want. A very famous Paitan by the name of Yechiel Nahali. Very famous Chazan, extraordinary voice. And he says the story. Yechiel Nahali came to this uh, Bet Knesset, this uh, Bet Knesset uh, Abuav, about five years ago, and he told the story. And he wrote it in the book. And he says, years ago, he was working in New York, and uh, after many years of praying and trying, his wife finally became pregnant. So when they went to the doctor to get her checks, to get everything tested and so on, suddenly three experts show up into the room and tell Yechiel Nali and his dear wife, we're sorry to tell you, but you're going to have to abort this baby. The baby is a uh, deformed and it will be a vicious thing to bring such a thing to life but don't worry it's only a 20 minute procedure and you guys can forget all about it and move on with your lives and bring a healthy baby to the world now Yechein Ali says well you know we're Jews we don't we don't have uh, abortions but the doctors started pressuring him and say no no you have to abort this baby it would be a vicious thing to bring such a baby to the world. You cannot bring such a thing to the world. And they're pressuring him and pressuring him. And he says to them, well, listen, in our, us Jews, we don't do anything without talking to our rabbis. So we have to talk to our rabbi. So the three doctors says, listen, we're not Jews. We don't know anything about this stuff that you're talking about. Go ahead and talk to the rabbi and just come back here tomorrow. We'll perform whatever the procedure. So Yechiel and his wife a distraught, a disheveled. These three experts are telling them that they have a deformed baby. They have to perform an abortion after so many years of trying to have a child. Just puts more salt on the wound. And by the time they leave, it's almost 9 o'clock in New York. And they want to ask the question of what to do, but you can't just ask anybody. You have to ask a gadol. You have to ask somebody that exact, knows the neshama of Israel. He says, I knew that Rav Mordechai Eliyahu is who I can talk to. But it's 3 o'clock in the morning in Israel. I couldn't wait, he says. And I knew that the tzaddik, he even answers questions at that time at night. And he calls Eretz Yisrael. And after two rings, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu picks up the phone. And Yechiel Nari starts crying to the Rav. Mamash crying on the phone. And he says to him everything that happened. 
And Rav Mordechai Eliyahu says to him, it's good you didn't listen to those three professors because that boy that you have is going to be born and he's going to be healthy and he's going to be especially smart. And those three doctors, they're all going to die in the first year your son is alive because of all of the abortions that they do. On one hand, he's happy that he just got this news from Agdola Dol just decreed his baby's going to be alive. Not exactly so excited about the second. I doesn't want anybody else to die, but that's the decree. That's what he said. Comes back to his wife. She says, says, everything's going to be okay. And therefore, everything's going to be okay. They go back to the doctors. They tell them the news. Listen, we're not having any abortions. The doctors almost lose their mind every single time they see them. They try to put more and more pressure on them to have an abortion. They don't leave this opinion. They keep doing it. And anyone that has experienced pregnancy in this uh, in, in, in recently knows that doctors are more and more quick to the trigger of killing babies these days. It's it's unbelievable. Like they immediately they see something, they want to kill the kid. I know one of our kids. They told us, listen. He has an extra big head. You know, you got to end this. Shem Yishmael who listens to these crazy people. Shtabach perfectly beautiful, healthy baby. These doctors have no care in the world sometimes. No care in the world. But that's the way it is. I know that Rav Ephraim, one of his kids, they literally told him to kill the kid until almost nine months pregnancy. Saying, no, it's not alive. It's not alive. It's not alive. The baby's alive and well. Baruch Hashem almost... 10 years old now but that's unfortunately sometimes what happens so you can't necessarily always say oh doctor said therefore you have to also sometimes have a conversation with the chachamim in this particular case smart enough to go to the gdolado and had access to one of the gdolado and he says the baby's gonna be born he's gonna be smart and those doctors are all going to die in the first year the baby's alive. And Yechiel says, as the Rav said, exactly on time the baby is born. And it's a beautiful baby. It's the cutest little boy. And all we care about, okay, it's alive, Baruch Hashem, nothing's deformed. We just want to make sure the baby's healthy otherwise. He says, not only is it healthy, but little by little we find out as time passes that this baby is especially smart. Four months later, after the baby is born, one of the doctors dies in a car accident. Of course, when he finds out, Yechien Ali finds out, he's shocked, he's nervous, goosebumps what can you do eight months after birth second doctor dies in a helicopter crash goes in a helicopter see some views who decides that's the day he's going to take his life back obviously this shocks them even further than the first one but he says but the third one Nothing was happening. And we're almost closed on a year. 
on exactly one year. The third one has a heart attack and dies on the spot. Exactly on a year. Their doctor. Just like Rav Mordechai Eliyahu said. He calls Rav Mordechai Eliyahu. He wants to tell him. He wants to tell him what happened. And Rav Mordechai Eliyahu says to him before he even says, Oh, he says to him, Yes, I know they all died. And the third one died today, right? He says, I forgot that someone that could already say something a year in advance doesn't need me to give him updates on the news either. He doesn't need updates. I forgot who I was talking to for a second. Fifteen years later, that little boy was named Daniel because Daniel is known as a very smart prophet that we have. He was a genius. Not just a prophet, but he was also a genius. So they named the boy Daniel. When he was 16 years old, he was in yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And there was a shiur that Rav Mordechai Eliyahu was giving. And for the first time in his life, Daniel attended the shiur. After the shiur was over, people are coming towards the Rav to get blessings and so on. And Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, out of everybody, points at Daniel. He doesn't know. I've never seen him in his life. He says, you, come here. He brings little Daniel to him. He says, your parents are Sfaradi or Ashkenazi? And little Daniel says, my Abba is Sfaradi, my Ima is Ashkenazi. He says, ah, then you must be Yechiel Nahari's uh, son. You're his boy. He says, yeah, the Rav know. He goes, I know a lot more. Let me tell you a story about what happened before you were born. He sits down with the little boy, Daniel, and he tells him the entire story that I just told you. The boy is enamored, obviously, runs back home after this, hears the story from the Gdullah door, runs to his parents, it's true. He says to them, not only is it true, but you heard it from the source. Why didn't you tell me? We waited to tell you when you were going to get married, but... HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted you to know it before, so you heard it from the source itself. You heard it from the Gdoladol. So little Daniel says to his father, so does Rav Mordechai Eliyahu have Ruch HaKodesh? He says, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu has a lot more than Ruch HaKodesh. He just doesn't share it with everybody. You see, Rabotai Karim, Ar Chachamim, there is no nation in the world that ever had or ever will have such people. Now you may look at a Chacham in the street and not identify anything special about them. In fact, you may even think that they're lesser than you. But don't forget what the Chazonish told us early on in this book. Someone that toils in Torah, someone that makes Torah their life, they're no longer men, but rather they're angels among men. They walk around like flesh and blood, like men. But they're nothing remotely close to it. They're angels among men. And these angels, Rabotai, are who we follow. These are the Gdolim. These are the greatest Jews that ever live and that ever will live. There's nothing else that compares to them. Nothing else is even the peel of an onion next to the smallest Gadol among them. 
Nothing is even close to them among all of the nations. The greatest among all of the nations is not equivalent to a peel of an avrech in a kolel that just completed the shas for the first time. Or even somebody that just a bachurani yeshiva that is shomer brit, shomer shabbat, shomer alacha and wants to be a gadol. All of the nations in the world are simply a drop in the bottom of the barrel in comparison to the ocean that is Am Yisrael. And Am Yisrael, that's the Chachamim. This is why we listen to them, and this is why we have blind faith in what they say. Why? Because we know these are who HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to lead us as the people. When we follow the Gdolim, we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu is backing it. And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is backing it, who are we to disagree? Baruch Adonai Leolam, Amen Amen. אני מברך את הרבנים, הרב ירון ראובן, הרב אפרים כחלון, ראשי ארגון בעזרת השם, שערכו בפעליון, שעלו מעלה מעלה, יהיה להם ברכה והצלחה, הקדוש ברוך הוא ימלא בשונות ליבם, לטובה ולברכה, שבכל אשר יפנו, ישכילו ויצליחו, יזכו לעשות כאלה וכאלה, ודיעו תורה לאדירה, אמן ואמן. הוא היהודי הזה, הוא היה מיליונר, סגר את כל הביזנס, אמר אני משקיע פה בעולמה של תורה. איפה הוא גר? בפלורידה. פלורידה, איפה זה פלורידה? באמריקה. כן, ליד. אנחנו שם עכשיו הולכים להקים קהילה ספרדית גדולה. קהילה ספרדית גדולה.